Okay, let's look at Mr. Brainerd. David Brainerd, he was born, some quick biological facts. He was born April 20th, 1718 in Haddam, Connecticut. And he died October 9th, 1747 of tuberculosis in the home of Jonathan Edwards at the age of 29. So not a very long life by any stretch of the imagination. Um, again, had a very hard family upbringing. Was one of 10 kids. So how's that for a big household? And they didn't have big houses back in the 1700s either. So you got 12 people under one roof. You got to feed 12 people and sleep 12 people and all that stuff, right? His father was a Connecticut legislator who died when David was nine years old. His dad was also a devout Puritan, which we know all about because we studied the Puritans last week. Uh, he was then orphaned. His mother died when he was 14. So at 14, David Brainerd is now an orphan along with the rest of his nine siblings. Um, he struggled with depression his whole life. And he had one quote that says, I was, I think, for my youth, something sober and inclined rather to melancholy than the other extreme. So he just thought, like, from, from the get-go, he was rather inclined to depression, melancholy, that sort of thing. Uh, he entered Yale uh, at age 21. He struggled again and was eventually expelled from Yale, which we're going to talk about, which was one of the big events in his life. He ended up as a Presbyterian missionary to the Indians in 1742 in the United States in the Northeast region, uh, New England, but actually spent a lot of time in New Jersey. And the town back then was called Crosswicksung, but now it is called Crosswicks, New Jersey, which is by Trenton. Sounds a little bit Trenton. And uh, yeah, one of, one of my monster commutes, I used to commute to uh, New Providence from Vernon, which is terrible. It's 10 miles below Morristown, so on a good day, it was about an hour and 40 minutes each way. Yeah, 23 to 287 to 24, there was just no escaping traffic. It was just like traffic to traffic to more traffic to my office. And so, But there was a street, as I'm sure there are many streets in the New Jersey, New England area called Brainerd Street. And I remember passing that, and I think it was in Summit. I'm just thinking about that. So... He served as a missionary to the Native Americans, to the Indians, until he was too sick. He tried to recover at Jonathan Edwards' house and eventually passed away from uh, tuberculosis at the age of 29. Or consumption, as other people might know that disease. All right? Um, that's some biological facts. Let's talk about some, some key life facts or key life themes and as we've seen in every one of these, I can, as we've seen in like every one of these, one of the first life themes that I touch on is conversion. So how was this person, David Brainerd, converted? He had a very legalistic upbringing. You might kind of think that with a Puritan, devout legislator of a father, right? He probably took the legislative aspect that he had in society and maybe transferred that over to religion, and especially being a Puritan as well. Uh, his religion growing up, he said, was very careful and serious, but it had no true grace. In other words, according to Puritan or biblical theology, he was unconverted. He, he would say he was not a true Christian. He had an idea of religion, but it wasn't transformative. Um, 
He had a brief attempt at being a farmer, and then he prepared to enter Yale. And this kind of fit him because he was a, uh, Piper described him as a scholar from head to toe. Like, he wasn't real good at the, the farming, the manual labor, all that stuff, but when it came to books and academics and studying, that was his jam. He was just suited to the scholarly academic pursuits. Um, despite, though, being truly unconverted, the weird thing was he made a promise to God to go into the ministry. And back then, Yale was a place that you went to to get trained to be a pastor. And so he, even though he wasn't converted, he made a promise to God to enter the ministry, uh, which we'll talk about in a little bit. In that whole aspect or that whole kind of period of his life, he read through the whole Bible twice in one year. He began to see more clearly then the plan of God, the true gospel. He began to see how some of these big pieces on the chessboard fit together. But still, he wrestled putting these big pieces together. He didn't understand how sin worked with God's law. He didn't understand the sovereignty of God and the, the place of our works. He, he didn't understand the gospel. And, and maybe very similar to John Bunyan, he really wrestled with these things. Like he didn't, it disturbed him to think about these things. You know, come that legalistic Puritan upbringing, right? And then he's reading the Bible and then you hear all these things about grace and the gospel. It's he couldn't put it all together in his head, so it was, it was very, very disturbing. And then his, uh, his creation, creation, his conversion, half hour before sunset, when he was 21 years old, he was again in a lonely place like many other guys that we've read so far, trying to pray and was dramatically converted. And I can probably do no better than his own account. And so I will read from his little diary. He was a, a ferocious autobiographer. He had a diary and a journal and all that. We have a lot. We have a wealth of information on Mr. Brainerd because of what he wrote about himself and what he was thinking. But here's his conversion story. He said, as I was walking in a thick, dark grove, unspeakable glory, he quoted, seemed to open to the view and the apprehension of my soul. It was a new inward apprehension or a view that I had had of God such as I had never had before, nor anything like I had the least remembrance of it, so that I stood still and wondered and admired, and I had now no particular apprehension of any one person of the Trinity, either the Father, Son, or Holy Spirit, but it appeared to be divine glory and splendor than I beheld. And my soul rejoiced with joy unspeakable to see such a God, such a glorious divine being. I was inwardly pleased and satisfied. Hey, guys. I was inwardly pleased and satisfied that he should be God over all forever and ever. My soul was so captivated and delighted with the excellency, the loveliness, and the greatness and other perfections of God that I was even swallowed up in him, at least to that degree, or had thought. And I remember as at first about my own salvation, or scarce, that there was such a creature as I. Thus the Lord, I trust, brought me to a hearty desire to exalt him, to set him on the throne, and to seek first his kingdom, principally and ultimately to aim at his glory and honor as king and sovereign of the whole universe. I wondered that all the world did not comply with this way of salvation entirely by the righteousness of Christ. Just his journal entry of once again how we see a, a kind of a great man of the faith wrestling with things that he read in God's word 
out walking in the woods or in a field and then just pondering these things, praying through these things, and then God reaching down and converting him rather dramatically as he, it clicked. You know, in, in, that, in that moment, it, it all clicked for him. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of, right? Because that's kind of not what he had. He had like the cold, legalistic, graceless side of things. But then the click was like, no, this is a love. This is a desire, uh, an affection for the supremacy of God and all things. So, so some implications we could talk about. First of all, legalism is not saving faith. What is, what is legalism? How would we describe legalism? What do you think? Putting the letter of the law in front of the spirit of the law. Putting the letter of the law in front of the spirit of the law. Okay, good, good. Any other thoughts? Thinking you need to do something to be saved. Okay, thinking you need to do something to be saved. Follow the letter of the law in order to be saved. Okay. Rules. Rules, okay. What, what are we trying to accomplish by the letter of the law, doing things, the rules? What are we going to please God? Yeah, thinking we're going to please God in that. That somehow that with what God, what I do, right, I can build myself up to be in the favor of God, right? What are the differences then between like a legalism and a true conversion? Because that's what he was struggling with. He came to understanding that he wasn't truly converted. realization that wow like I'm I'm just a sinner separated from God there's nothing I can do it has to be given by God God's the one that's sovereign over salvation right when, when we talk about conversion it's it's critical again we hit this in every one of these guys so far it's critical to have a, a solid robust biblical understanding of what conversion is Right, and there's a really helpful little book in case you were wondering. Uh-oh, things falling from the sky. Too many books. Uh, this book called Conversion by Michael Lawrence. And um, it's called How God Creates... <laughs> for anybody else that's on there. How God Creates a People. Uh, Michael Lawrence is a pastor of uh, Hinson Baptist in Portland, Oregon. Um, but good book if you want a kind of an overview of conversion, biblical idea of conversion. And, and he really hits the, the difference of trying to be nice. Like, is that what you're trying to do in, in being a Christian? Are you, are you just trying to be nice? Or is biblical conversion actually being made new? And, of course, his point is a biblical conversion, a Christian, is not just somebody who's nice. It's somebody who's made new. Right, somebody who's who's transformed, right? And that's exactly what David Brainerd found untenable. Like he could not make that work because he was essentially trying to be nice, but he wasn't made new. And so uh, Lawrence in this book makes a great quote: "It's burdensome to try to live up to a new nature that you don't have." Right. So you're trying to, in a sense, live like a Christian but you haven't been converted, so you don't have the new nature. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You don't have all of those dire desires and everything, and it's exhausting, and that's what he ran into. He's like, I'm just trying to be a Christian, but I'm not actually a Christian, right? And you kind of hit that wall of frustration, right? That's what legalism is, right? You're trying to actually be something that you're not, 
or you're trying to make others think that they have to do something that you know maybe they're not right um, Jesus says come to him right because his burden is easy and his yoke is light right that's not burdensome that's the point when we come to Jesus the biblical definition of conversion is that we're made new he gives us those new <laughs> desires and he gives us what we need to follow him in his, in, in his holy spirit so um yeah think about that and, and these these accounts and especially Brainerd's was really good about um, making that difference and so when we're in a church we just really want to continue to highlight what biblical conversion is as opposed to maybe what it kind of creeps in as sometimes right we throw around a lot of Christian words, like saved, right? What does it mean to be saved? One of, one of the big questions sometimes we ask during an elder interview. <laughs> For anyone being interviewed by the elders coming up, is what are we saved from? Okay, we're saved. But what are we saved from? Not You're not giving the answer? <laughs> Ourselves, okay. Could it could it be hmm, the wrath of God? Yeah. Well, it's ourselves, right? That right. that places we're under the wrath of God, right? Because of our sin, right? But that's right. The great Robert Charles Sproul said that we are saved by God from God, right? That that he he's the one who actually saves us from himself, from his own wrath that we deserve because of sin. Well, and so, you read that in the Bible. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, when we talk about a biblical conversion and being saved, yeah, not only were we made new, of course, we're saved from the wrath of God that we all deserve uh, from, from sin, from our, our own rebellion against sin. We're all sinners by nature and choice. And so these men really struggled with these things. And sometimes if you've been around church your whole life, you kind of like don't necessarily think about all of that struggle of how do we put this together? You know, and what does it mean, the wrath of God, and how do I live in grace, but yet we have all these rules, and that's what the gospel does. It puts all those pieces. Any other thoughts on conversion or anything like that? No? Safe place? No questions? Okay. Well, we don't really have to because that's when there's no condemnation. <laughs> you know, it's the yeah. Christ, you know? So, but we have a new nature, so we don't. True. Or, yeah. Right. Or it should, well, so but still we do, right? But it's still. More of a desire. Yes. It's, it's what, what we really want to be and how we want to be. Right. And yeah. so rather than, like you said, that's what makes the yoke light. Yep. Exactly. And yeah. Yeah. Tanner's idea was things that you need to follow, even though you can't yes. follow them. Yes. So. God still, well, the moral law is still God, in effect, God right? moral laws in Christian living rules. Yep, yep. Rally. He still has rules for us to follow, but he empowers us to do them, and he gives us a new nature to do them, right? And when we break those rules, right, which is called sin, we feel it. Right. We're, we're convicted of it. We understand. That's the Holy Spirit living inside us, shooting off flares in our soul, going, something's wrong. <laughs> Get back on the path. And we're saved by grace. Yep. That's right. Yep. And then when you have that new heart, you have that desire to please the Lord and to obey. Because he gives yeah. you that. But you're not doing it out of sense of duty or 
Yeah. We, we talked about that story, you know, uh, intellectual, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. The rules could be in the head. Yeah. But the conversion, the transformation goes to the heart. Yeah. Right? It, it, it moves from the head to the heart. Yeah. It was the Pharisees, the Sadducees, right? Intellectually, they were the brainiacs, right? Yeah. And boom, 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 and this and that, going walk so far. But, but, um, you call them wipers. You know, it, 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 yeah. It, 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 there was no heart. There was yeah. no love. Yeah. Well, that's what they lorded over the people, right? The, the power that they lorded over the people. The prestige of being the rabbis and the whole system was then their, their whole world. They made, they made the old covenant their kingdom, right? And they were like the kings of their little kingdoms. And, of course, they put all the other commandments around the Ten Commandments, the Mishnah and all of that, and, you know, they enforced it. So. They kind of forced a hierarchy. Oh, yeah. Religious hierarchy. Yep. What about the idea of unconverted people in the ministry? <laughs> I know, scary, right? right? A lot of, lot of eyebrows going up, right? Wolves, wolves in sheep's clothing? Yeah. We actually see this, right? Unfortunately, like we can't assume that necessarily everybody that steps behind a pulpit in any church, right, is necessarily like has an understanding of the gospel and is an actual converted Christian, right? I mean... Guy was going into seminary. He wasn't a Christian. He's just like, I just, it's the right thing to do. Become a pastor. Okay. <laughs> right? So that, that's a kind of a sobering thought, right? Even in parachurch ministries, right, there was this big bombshell article with, dare I say his name, Falwell and Liberty University, right? And he basically said, yeah, I'm not really a Christian. You know, I just was president of the largest Christian university in the world. Uh, but I didn't really, it wasn't really me, you know. I don't know whether he was trying to cover his tracks or what. But same idea. Like, I, just because of somebody's position, right, we don't necessarily need to just assume, right? And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate reality. What about the idea that God can still use empty promises? Like, here he is, like, I'm going to serve you, God. And he's, God's going, I don't know you. Mm. <laughs> Right? The, the idea that Brainerd tried to do the right thing to please God, which, yeah, he was unconverted, and there's a huge difference between someone who says that, right, to try and please the man upstairs or score some points, you know, in the good column or tip the scales the other way for all the bad deeds that they did or something else like that. All of that's false, of course. But then do we ever get sucked into that as well? Even as Christians, do we get sucked into, you know, just... I'll put a little in the plus column. I'll get up early, read my Bible this morning, or I'll, you know, I'll say something about Jesus, or you know, those other things. Like, do we actually do those things again out of our new nature, for the glory of God, or are we subtly kind of buying into? Let's just let's just do a couple good things. Good things to think about. What about the role of God's word in conversion? Again, like how many times have we seen that? We're going to continue to see it. Like Luther was jumping off the page and hitting him in the head. Role of God's word in conversion. What does that say about our Bibles? Yeah. Should we uh, read them? <laughs> yeah. Should we read all of them? Like he read through the whole Bible twice in one year. And then it started to do something, right? Many of us, I mean, Melanie and myself included, like that was a lot of time when it, it really clicked. We just read through the whole Bible. 
and we'll be able to put some of those big pieces together. So definitely read the whole Bible. And of course, one of my favorite ones that I just thought of today, if you're not saved, maybe you should go for a walk. Because apparently all these guys got saved when they went for a walk. So try that. You know, if you're evangelizing friends or family members, it's just not working. Just, hey, why don't we go for a walk? Well, you know what? Think about it. In the Garden of Gethsemane, what did, what did Jesus do with Adam and Eve? I mean, the Garden yeah. of Gethsemane with Adam and Eve? No, no, no. In the Garden. We know what you meant. The Garden of Eden. We know what you meant. Thank you for catching me. We got you. We got you. That was the trick. That was the trick. That was good. That was good. But they walked and talked. Yeah. With God. Yeah. That's something, huh? Yeah, absolutely. It's, I mean, I'm. Half kidding, but like the idea of getting in nature. Anybody just go for hikes and just pray and think and meditate and those yeah. are good good things, man. Good things. Get in God's creation. It makes a big difference. We were yeah. talking about that this morning, just the sunrise. Yeah. And and, and, and you hang around the Delaware, I mean it's just amazing. That big that Delaware the ice coming down. It, 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 it's yeah. much just about the majesty. Yeah. Know? Creation. Yeah. When the fool says to look at that, he says there is no God. Yeah. I would agree. Yep. All right. So that's his conversion. Let's look at another big key theme in his life, which is a negative one, which was his expulsion from Yale. So he got kicked out of Yale mm. after one year. He's at 21. He's struggling greatly. Uh, usual new student pressures, like social pressures. He's battling sin, temptation to sin. You're away from home. Of course, you've got a full course load, so you're studying like crazy, right? Additionally, he quickly got very ill. Like, almost immediately, he became very ill. So do the math. He's 21. He died at 29. He got tuberculosis at 21. So already, he's starting to struggle with the disease that will eventually kill him. He quickly developed and tuberculosis uh, progressed. He had frequent interruptions to his semesters because of sickness. He had to take time off. He kept going home to recuperate. Um, he was part of what got him kicked out was he was part of the controversies of the New Light movement, right? The Great Awakening was happening. People like Whitfield were running around preaching at the top of their lungs. People were getting saved. And then there was this kind of revival in the students at Yale. And they started looking at some of the faculty and being like, I don't know how true that is what you just said. Or, I don't know, are you really actually saved? So these students started speaking out against some of the liberal faculty and some of these things. And he was one of them. And in a careless remark that he said, one of his professors, I think he said a chair had more grace than he did. <laughs> and somebody overheard him, and then he went on to say, like, I don't know how the dean in his right mind could have thought this man was a believer or something like that. <laughs> and people heard him, and this was now against the law because they passed a law that said, all you crazy people that are falling for this revival stuff you like, and, and talking smack about the faculty, that's it. No more, no more protests, no more signs, no more to anybody who says anything against the faculty at Yale, you're done, you're out. And so he got heard. He was overheard when he said that, and he was actually expelled for Yale. He was actually expelled. The, the law said that uh, you could be kicked out for saying a faculty member was unconverted, heretical, or even a hypocrite. At Yale, okay? Mm -hmm. 
So how far has Yale fallen, right? They, I mean, don't forget, like this was a Christian university that was made to train men for the ministry. And that was one, one condition of being kicked out of Yale was to talk about the spiritual maturity of the faculty because, of course, they were all Christians, right? Because it was a Christian university, right? Yeah, this was 17, so if you died, yeah. Been an institution like Yale. Yeah, it was very well, very small compared to now, right? Already fallen well, in a sense, they were trying to hold the line against what they thought was religious fanaticism, right? But who knows? We don't. It's a right. It's a case by case basis, right? And, and let's face it, you got twenty one year old kids. Freshly converted, they're sitting under the preaching of George Whitfield. It's kind of like the Calvinist cage stage. Like they're they're gonna go, they're they're gonna be a little bit aggressive, probably, right? And then the old fuddy duddies or whoever they were, the profs, right? Might might have been a little bit soft. So it's probably six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? Um, so he was speaking out against the spiritual maturity, and he was expelled, and this crushed him. This absolutely devastated him. Because by now he was converted, and by now he really understood the gospel, and he wanted to be a pastor with all of his heart. And so this basically killed that, killed that career path, just getting kicked out of Yale. And the reason was because there was a law in the books that said no established ministry could be, minister could be installed in Connecticut who had not graduated from Harvard, Yale, or a, a European university. So if you wanted to be a pastor in Connecticut and you wanted to be licensed to preach, you better gone to Harvard or Yale. And he just got kicked out of Yale. And sure, Harvard wasn't going to take him at that point either. right? So now he's like, great, God. Now I really do want to be a pastor. I really do understand the gospel. And now that's out. I just got the rug yanked out from under me. So, so implications right you think like oh my gosh i'm the only one who just got my whole life like sidetracked here like everything got put on pause that i was trying to do but christians have been struggling with this for centuries so what do we do when the rug gets yanked out from us how do we process that as believers scream and shout and run in circles you could do that for a little while. I recommend coming out of that. And <laughs> yeah. Get it out of your system. Yeah, get it out of your system. That's cool. Right. Take a walk in the woods. Take a walk in the woods. Go far away and scream or something. Yeah. Yep. You know, it's basically how do we handle disappointment? Right? A non think about it like from a non Christian worldview versus a Christian worldview. Any thoughts on that? Yep. Yep. It's a, it's a, it could be a transformative time, right? It's you're, you're right. Like, okay, well, how's this gonna go? How am I gonna think about this? How am I gonna process this? Sure. You could be angry. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It may not make sense, right? Nope. Make sense. Nope. Probably. Might not ever make sense. No. Not on this side of Right? Sometimes we get, a, like somebody once said, like God's always doing a billion things. Sometimes we get to see a few of them. Like there's no guarantees. I don't subscribe to that theory that once we get to heaven, 
we're going to have a, a presentation of everything that happened to our lives and why it happened, right? And just, it's, yeah, I'm not going to care. Yeah, gonna I, I'm going to be on my face singing Jesus, thank you, or something. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Okay, Frank. Exactly. Exactly. That's the point. So sometimes you'll hear people say, like, you know, well, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven. Like, well, maybe. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> Probably not going to care. It's not going to be like, okay, Frank, your life debrief is in room uh, 12,748. Go in there. They'll show you the video of why that happened to you when you were six. So now you can understand all the pieces will come together for you. I don't, I don't think, I don't see anything in the Bible. <laughs> not necessarily saying you're a heretic if we think that, but you know, hey, it's, you know. Um, it's how, as a Christian, what, what do we grab onto in those moments? What things? Big things, bigger themes, biblical themes. God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. God's, God's sovereignty. God's the big sovereignty. S word. God's sovereignty. It doesn't make sense to us, but yep. in God's sovereignty, you know, speaking personally, two big events that I remember thinking that they were, the rug was yanked out was when my dad died mm -hmm. for a period of, went for three weeks mm -hmm. of being healthy to dying. Um, and wow. then when Matt's brother, Thank you for sharing that. Those are those are again transformative times where you're forced to trust God. Yeah. Jesus one hundred percent human. Yep. One hundred percent God. Yep. He experienced emotions, mm -hmm. and he knows our emotions. Yep. And this, when Lazarus died, he wept. Yep. So, the God's Gar the, the Garden of Gethsemane for real this time, right? Did you get that? Right? All right? All right? Is there any way we can do this without me going to the cross, right? Please? Yeah. Yeah, uh, and that's something, though. He understands feelings. He's human, 100% human. Yeah, yeah. On the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? All of that, he, he, he feels it. You know, his humanity feels that, that disappointment, that confusion, that... Despair. It, it, it's yeah. natural. He sweated blood. He didn't. Oh yeah. He, he didn't want to go through yeah. with it, but he, he, he was in agony yeah. in the garden. Yeah. yeah. God understands that. You know, he knows it's okay to weep. It's okay to cry. Yeah. And, and God created us to be meaning makers, right? That we question stuff. We're human. We're the only animal on the face of the planet that cares. You know, when when I watch a lot of Instagram 
animals killing and eating other animals. Like, you know, when a, when a baby zebra. I know. When a baby zebra, I agree. When a baby zebra is killed in front of the mom zebra, like the mom zebra is not like, why did this happen? Oh my, it's only us. Only human beings who are made in the image of God. We're questioners, we're reasoners, we're thinkers, we have a soul, and, and sometimes it gets us into trouble <laughs> because we're like, why did this happen? I want to know right now. This must make sense to me. And God's up there going, I don't really have to tell you. <laughs> you got to trust me. Sometimes he's gracious in the way that we get to see how things line up. And then we're like, oh. Or sometimes we get a little nugget of just like, you know, looking through a slotted fence and we get to see a little bit of, wow, that wouldn't have happened if this didn't happen or that didn't, or that happened or whatever. But God doesn't owe us an explanation, right? That's what we got to remember. Yes, my father was killed in a car accident at 13. What's that? Sure. Yeah. Yep. And he gets that. He understands that. And his shoulders are big enough to, to accept that. You look at Job. He questioned. He railed against God. He didn't go as far as his wife wanted him to go, but he was, you know, he was questioning. Um, and so, yeah, we are free to. we got to go to God with those questions and those struggles and go to each other. Um, you know, look at the Psalms. They're all over. David wrestling, the lament Psalms. It's all about that, right? So, yeah, we, we've got to remember God's sovereignty. We've got to remember trusting in him, who he is. Ken said before, the love of God. It's another big thing that we remember Spurgeon said, but you can't trace his hand, you know, trust his heart. Like, I don't know what you're doing, but I know who you are. And I know your character. And I know you're good. And I know you're there. Right? And sometimes we don't, well, oftentimes we don't have the answers for each other either. And so we dare not sometimes try. So what about this kind of implication of finding God's will for our lives? Anybody who went to youth group, who was a Christian kid, that was like it, man. You had to find God's will for your life. Who you're supposed to marry. You can't marry the wrong one because then the whole world is going to be one spouse off for all of eternity, right? You've got to find the exact job that God wants you to have or whatever else, right? Ephesians 1.11 says this, In him we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's our sovereign God. He works all things. And so it's, God's will is not a secret treasure hunt that we have to find, right? And we see, we'll see in a moment, especially David Brainerd was not sidelined because he screwed up at Yale, right? He's going to continue to use all things in his sovereign will. But any thoughts on God's will? Like, how do we determine God's will for our lives? What is God's will for our life? Okay. God's will for our life is in his word. Okay. Our sanctification. God's will is our sanctification. Yeah, that is First Thessalonians. He says, point blank, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Sanctification being growth in holiness, growth in Christ-likeness, right? Um, what's the most important commandment? Love the Lord your God. Yeah. yeah. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? That is huge, 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 huge. Um, God 
uh, another, while I'm, while I'm talking about good books, Kevin DeYoung wrote this book a long time ago, but it's called Just Do Something, A Liberating Approach to Finding God's Will. So he says, what does God care about the most for our lives? Do we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Mm -hmm. Right? And it's like, and, and if you short circuit that to try and figure out who you're supposed to marry or what job you're supposed to do, where you're supposed to live, God's going, okay, hold on here. Those are not, I know you're thinking about those things, and I'll, have you, I'll give you grace. But the most important thing is do you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Because if you do that, it's funny how all those other things will become much more clear to you. Yeah, Proverbs 3, 5, question, where do you have your heart? Yep, absolutely. Yep, uh, like he said in Matthew 6, 33, right? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Sometimes we put the cart before the horse in that. So we've got to remember that. That's uh, talking about God's will for our lives and what God cares about most for our lives. That doesn't say we can't uh, question. That doesn't say we can't struggle. That is not to say we can't have those moments where we do take a walk in the woods and raise our fists and go, what are you doing? I don't understand. But bring ourselves back. Right? Okay. Two more key themes, and then we'll be done with Mr. Brainard. But one of them was uh, sickness. He suffered greatly with sickness, tuberculosis, which took his life, especially in the last few months of his life. It was horrific. Uh, terrible, terrible. He describes this, what he called a hiccup, but he said it was a hiccup where he literally couldn't breathe, couldn't cough, couldn't throw up, couldn't, you know, it was just like, and that's how he existed, you know, with this tuber tuberculosis that was uh, destroying him. He died at 29, he was a Christian for only eight years. He was only a missionary for four, right, at that point, right? But yet his diary, which I took a little screenshot of there, the life and diary of David Brainerd, has never been out of print, and it still continues today. The diary of that man. He traveled still over 3,000 miles on horseback. On horseback! <laughs> I've not ridden a horse since I was probably like nine, but I did, and I was like, I don't, this hurts. I don't want to be on a horse anymore. 3,000 miles? What the heck? Right? He still served, and he served as a missionary to the Indians despite all of the sickness, and he would, he would preach. He would go to them. He would go for all the different tribes in New England, wherever he was, or, or, or in southern central New Jersey. He would go to all the tribes on horseback. He would preach. He would then go and just be out of commission for a couple days because he was just so wrecked with sickness. And then he would get back up and do it again. And so some quicker implications here. What is, what is faithful service to God? What does it mean to be faithful? What are, what are, we, what are results in ministry? Or our lives how do we know when we're living this Christian life and doing it well is it a number of years I mean this guy was only a Christian for eight years he's like barely a probably couldn't even been an elder I mean you know <laughs> just kidding right eight years like come on keep on running the race the goal to finish it. yeah persevere to the end fight the good fight 
Finish strong, finish well, finish faithfully. Yeah, have that eye of perseverance, definitely. What other other thoughts on what is a, a faithful life? I guess if, if his ministry was difficult because of what he was doing, because of the 3,000 miles on horseback and you yep. know, being so, um, I guess, drained from the work he was doing, I think that's a pretty good implication that he was doing the will of God. Like, mm. doing the will of God is not supposed to be easy. It's not mm. so, you know, so maybe he wasn't facing the persecutions that, like, Puritans and whoever else was facing, but he was struggling. You yeah. know, it, like you said, all that time on horseback certainly didn't help his <laughs> you know, so between the sickness yeah. and like the physical difficulty of being a missionary to many tribes, um, yeah. probably was his burden to bear. Yeah, yeah. But a good, good indication point. that he was doing right. He was yeah. No, you raise a great point because it's like it almost kind of gives us more glory. Like if everything's going well and smooth, I mean that's not the goal. <laughs> the goal isn't for everything to go well. Right? The goal is to be faithful, and a lot of times that's accompanied by struggle, and it should be. Yeah, good. Any other thoughts on what faithfulness to God looks like in ministry and life? Because, you know, you'd probably look at this and be like, okay, well, he got kicked out of Yale. He was a missionary for four years. He was totally sick all the time, and he drove a lot of horses. That doesn't sound like a very successful guy to me. Like, the fruits of the Spirit. Okay. Yeah. Was he growing in those straight in sanctification? Absolutely. Yep. He's following God's will for his life. Yep. It doesn't mean he's going to feed himself. True. It just means that he was following what God was telling him. True. And now, like, how many years later, his diary is still in print. Yep. And reaping benefits of his brief, you know, four years as a missionary. Yeah. That he may not have feed himself, but he's following God's will. Yeah. Absolutely. And we'll talk more about that in a second, too. So we got to remember that our service to God is not dependent on earthly timelines, right? Or milestones or key performance indicators <laughs> or any of those things necessarily, right? And we can get caught up sometimes in that sort of thing. Even as pastors and elders and ministry leaders in church, you'd be like, well, how many people do you have? How many people did you baptize? How many members do you have? Like, you know, it's like, okay, whoa, hold on. Like those things are good, they can help us, but that's not what we're necessarily gauging successful faithful ministry as, right? He did have a fair among a fair amount of success with the Indians. He did actually grow, especially in New Jersey. He had a lot of conversions. I think the first, I think he was there two years. I think it was two years that I was reading. I mean, his little church that he was starting is in. He had like 130 people that were converted. You know, so he definitely had success in and uh, gospel ministry among the Indians. But to Bridget's point, like, you know, that was a lot of hard work that went into that. A lot of horseback riding, mm -hmm. a lot of language learning, a lot of relationship building, all of that. So faithfulness in the ministry and faithfulness as a Christian doesn't always look like what we think it's going to look like. Right? They didn't have work with Bible translators to uh, make Bible With their software? Yeah, with their software to make Bible for <laughs> What's the Indian word for substitutionary atonement? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Plug that in here. Figure that out. They still needed 300 signatures. <laughs> they did. Besides the fact that we're probably 300 Indian languages. Yeah, well. dialects and all that other stuff, right? And the idea of perseverance in gospel ministry. Like, just because it gets hard, 
doesn't mean we give up. Christian life is hard. Christian fighting sin is hard. Growing in Christ is hard. We've got to persevere. One quote said, Brainerd's life is a vivid, powerful testimony to the truth that God can and does use our weak, sick, discouraged, beaten down, lonely, struggling saints who cry out to him day and night to accomplish amazing things for his glory. There is great fruit in their afflictions. And we can get all depressed sometimes and think like, ugh, I'm just not having an impact. Or I'm not growing the way I want to grow. Or whatever, I'm not having seeing the fruit, right? Let's not underestimate because if you're in Christ, you are bearing fruit in some way, shape, or form. You might not be able to see it right away, right? And just because it's hard, it doesn't mean it's not growing. So we need to persevere. We're called to persevere. He also had this... this um, fascination, if you will, with the supremacy of God in all things. Like, that's the reason he ministered to the Indians, because he was fully convinced in the gospel truth and fully convinced in the supremacy of God. And he wanted them to know that. Um, Again, Piper summarized this. Brainerd's conviction was that there was no aspiration on earth that surpassed the supreme purpose to savor and spread the reign of Christ in his own personal holiness and the conversion of the Indians for the glory of God. That's how, again, how do we show the glory of God? We're transformed more into the image of him bit by bit. That's what he meant by personal holiness. So that was huge to Brainerd, too. He wanted to grow more into the image of Christ. That's how he was going to show the supremacy of God, but also the work that he was given with the Indians. That's how I'm going to show the supremacy of God. I'm going to preach the gospel, and they're getting saved. We're going to plant a church, and you know they're going to grow into a community of Christ. So... Supremacy of God. And then like, kind of likewise, the opposite of that is if, if God is supreme, then some of the other things that we see in culture and pursue and get wrapped up in become kind of trivial. The conviction that much of what passes our time and is celebrated by culture is, is trivial, right? Again, you read a guy like Brainerd, much like uh, Bunyan or somebody else like that, it's, oh man, it's deeply convicting. Because it's like, how much time do I waste on earthly comforts? And these guys certainly didn't worry about that. Um, I had a note to look at this page, and now I don't know why. Oh, Brainerd's prayer, his meditation, his writing, and his whole life are one sustained indictment of our trivial time and culture, even much of the Christian culture. Right, that idea that you know what he was pursuing and what he went through to pursue the supremacy of God, you know, it's, it makes our lives uh, in many ways we get, it's convicting. We think about what we spend our time and our money and our resources on. Sometimes, any thoughts before we move on to our last life theme about the suffering or any implications of that that you're thinking through? Yeah. Like he was pointing at things. It's like, what were they doing back then? Did they like change anything? You know, like, what, what was the Christian culture? It's that new fancy organ they brought into the church. It's <laughs> yeah. going to be the devil's music. Yeah. I, well, I mean, you can kind of look back on um, the Yale thing, right? Kind of, that has to play into it. Like, the liberality, I guess you might say, that was even starting back then of 
people who claim to be Christians but yet weren't living as Christians or maybe weren't uh, preaching and holding out the supremacy of God as the Bible holds out the supremacy of God. Um, you know, a guy like Brainerd, again, was just fully consumed with this. This was his life calling. And so I think there probably was a tendency to go off the ditch on the other side of the road and be like, oh, my gosh, not that they had TV. It's like, are you watching TV? Ugh, what a waste of time. You know, something like that. The idea of if you're not really fully engaged in gospel ministry 24 hours a day, seven days a week, maybe you're not you know, serious about this. Speculating but you can kind of see how something like that might play in. But certainly it's an indictment against our current Christian culture and our current church culture, right? Um, In many ways, that's what we're looking for, comfort or any of those other metrics or things like that. Okay, last but certainly not least, and on a low note, he struggled with depression his entire life. Uh, even after conversion, right? This wasn't one of those things. He struggled with depression before conversion, and he struggled with depression after conversion. Which you might think like, okay, well, it wasn't the same way. It was different because of the knowledge of God, because of um, his uh, new nature, right? One author said there were over 22 entries in his diary where he just wanted to die. I heard one from December 16th, 1744, was so overwhelmed with dejection, sorry, that I knew not how to live. I longed for death exceedingly. That's pretty low when you're writing that in your diary, right? And, and many people struggle with depression still today. And that is, that is a low, low point. And, and, and oh, how we can identify. With, with even saints of the past, right? Even David Brainerd, right? And even though he was a Christian, right? Some of the passages were so dark that Jonathan Edwards, who was the man who compiled his diary that was uh, never out of print, didn't put him in <laughs> or edited them. He's just like, I, I can't. I'm not going to put this one in. Right? It just gets so dark in there that Jonathan Edwards um, edited them out. I know at some point we're going to get to Jonathan Edwards. If not, we're going to put him in. Oh, that's right. He wasn't actually in this table of contents, and I wrote it at the end. I'm like, Edwards, come on now. It's because he's written like three other books on Edwards himself. So, But Jonathan Edwards, uh, at the end of his life, took in um, David Brainerd, and his daughter, his 18-year-old daughter, was his nurse and tried to nurse him back to health, which didn't happen. And then six months later, she died because she got tuberculosis mm-hmm. trying to uh, nurse Brainerd back to health. So now you got Edwards trying to rationalize this whole thing, which he, of course, did uh, under the umbrella of God's sovereignty. And, and there's some great writings about that as well. So all this to say, right, God uses those who struggle. And God uses us despite our struggles. Right? Sometimes even in the church we have kind of a negative connotation of depression or anxiety or struggling with more kind of mental illnesses or something, right? But here we have record of a saint who his whole life, even after conversion, struggled greatly with depression. And how do we rationalize that? Any thoughts on just how, how as Christians we, we work through something like depression like this? Yeah. 
how are we supposed to help someone with depression? Yeah. 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 Always a great plan. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, when people go through depression, uh, you have to be very careful as you count with people as a Christian. You don't believe in God and that their faith is not enough. You shouldn't, you should fight for it. Oh, oh yeah, pull out, pull out the faith card, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's a very dangerous thing. It is a very dangerous thing. Uh, it's kicking someone when they're down. Uh, it, it, sometimes it's physical. Mm-hmm. Could be. Could. Could help. Right. You have to be very sensitive. It's not that they sinned and it's a punishment. It's just, it, 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 it's it, you can't draw a one-to-one correlation, but sometimes there's sin in the mix, right? Yeah. Right. So that that. So I think kind of the, the general aspect of how do you help someone, a brother or sister in depression, is first of all, come alongside them, yes. right? First, don't ignore them. Come alongside them. Get involved in their lives and, and remind them of the truth of God's word. So sometimes there could be a disconnect with their understanding of God. It could be a disconnect. And even the darkness, right, things get all mushy and blurry and everything else, and a good friend, a good brother and sister will come alongside you and remind you, no, God's not like this. God's like this. Let's go read in Psalms and let's see where God is. Let's see this is our God. Um, you know, and, and a good friend will be looking for sin. Like God, God uses sin and the conviction that comes from that to make us right, right? Like if you're stuck in sin and you claim to be a believer, you're kind of supposed to be miserable. And God's using that to snap you out, right? So ask good diagnostic questions of what's going on. You know, what, what's going on? Where are you not? Where are you maybe not trusting God? Where are you maybe directly sinning? What are these things we can talk about, right? Lots of prayer, lots of scripture, lots of time, lots of love, lots of sitting, right? There's no, there's no pad answers that we can give anybody. There's no empty encouragements like you were saying, just have faith or count it all joy, brother. Don't use James. <laughs> all right, sometimes use James, but, you know, wear a hockey mask if you're going to use James, you know, something. At the, Absolutely. Yeah. You kind of have to see, like, are things getting better? Are things not getting better? Right? I like to say there, there could be a medical problem, right? There's always a spiritual problem. There's always, even just somehow we're, we're, we just need more of Jesus somewhere in our souls, in our lives, and might need more. Not that there's, let me rephrase that, right? <laughs> Not that there's more, that you, we don't need Jesus plus, but the idea that there could be other avenues that could be helpful right, in that. So in a strange way, I want this to encourage us, right, that we see great men of the past that did struggle greatly with depression. Spurgeon's another one. We could go on and on. There are lots of other guys, right? But another thing that uh, Brainerd did well was he wielded the weapons of spiritual disciplines. Like he refused to go down without a fight. So he would 
memorize scripture. He would meditate on scripture. Obviously, he journaled his heart out <laughs> because we have it, right? We have the diary. So he journaled, and it was ugly, right? It was dark. He journaled these thoughts. He prayed to God. He fasted. He was a ferocious, fa he fasted ferociously. He did it all the time. Um, so use the spiritual disciplines and, and use them use them well. And also then, kind of what we were saying, just to kind of land the plane, don't lose sight of how our endurance spurs other people on. Like, yeah, we're all fighting. We all, we all are struggling. We all are running the race. We all have things that we're struggling with. You know, some are more intense in different areas than others, but we're all fighting struggle. And, and that endurance spurs other people on. One of the really weird things that came out of uh, Brainerd getting kicked out of Yale was basically that Princeton College started and Dartmouth College started because there were people that heard that David Brainerd got kicked out of Yale and they're like, well, this is not acceptable. Like, it's David Brainerd. And they tried to lobby to get him back into Yale. That didn't work, but then they just said, well, we'll just start another one. Mm -hmm. And then they started Princeton. <laughs> <laughs> and Dartmouth, you know, like you just don't know what your life is going to do down the road. And you look at Edwards, so impacted by the life of David Brainerd. You don't know what your perseverance, your endurance is going to do down the road. And so the question really is, too, how will God use your mustard seed, right? How will God use your small, weak faith? in the midst of depression, in the midst of sickness, in the midst of life that goes wrong and haywire, how will God use that down the road? And that we don't know, but we trust and we hope to see fruit down the road. So Mr. Brainerd, any other closing thoughts, comments, questions, disparaging remarks, encouraging remarks? Well, you don't have to be a license to be a minister now. Anybody can plant a church and yeah. unfortunately get approved yeah, for a fund. Oh, yeah, so we can perform a wedding version. No, I, I wish it was a little bit more regulated than it is. I was surprised that, you know, there was such things as a license thing, you know, to preach. Oh, yeah. It's Presbyterians, man. They were playing by the rules. You definitely still have to be a licensed and ordained minister to step behind a Presbyterian pulpit or a CRC pulpit or anything you know, like that. But if you want to start a non-denominational church like Highlands Bible Church, yeehaw, let's go. We'll just do it. That's why we have elders. Right, Bob? Keep everything on the straight and narrow. All right. Well, let me pray for us. Thank you, guys. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your grace, your love. And, of course, we thank you for the life of David Brainerd. And it just seems trivial to say that, Lord, but the idea of what this man went through, uh, what he accomplished for your kingdom, and now the legacy that here we are in 2022 talking about this man from the 1700s who was just here for 29 years. And all of those years were characterized by hardship, by struggle, by sickness, by depression, uh, by persevering in the ministry. But, Lord, you grow such good things 
from that. You are a redeeming, merciful God. Uh, may this encourage us as we seek to follow you. Uh, may we even attempt great things for you like he did and others. And may you receive the glory. We pray it through Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen.